Good folks, please turn to Psalm 8. If you were to do an audit on your life at this moment in time, would you find yourself to be in a strong position or in a weak position? I would imagine that if you were doing some sort of a strength audit, you would take into account a number of different things. Perhaps, first of all, your relationships. How's your, how are your relationships with other people, with your spouse, with your children, with friends? How is your relationship with God? And then you might consider other things, like your financial position. You might consider things like your security. And then the economic climate that we find ourselves in in Zimbabwe, the political climate, economic climate, and the social climate. And if you were to take all of those things into consideration, maybe you'd also think about the things that have an impact on you that you have no control over. Are there a lot of things that are having an impact on your life at the moment that you have no control over? Maybe it's a health issue. That's another thing that you might consider. If you took all of those things into the mix, would you say that you were in a strong or a weak position today? I think many of us would say that we're in a fairly weak and vulnerable position. And by implication, this would mean that harvest also is in a weak position. Would that be a fair implication to draw? I wonder if it is. I don't know about you, but when I find myself in a weak position, I feel a certain amount of dismay, maybe some anxiety, perhaps even fear, depending on how severe the weaknesses are. And if I allow those feelings to run unchecked, then they lead to things like hopelessness, depression, and very occasionally despair. And as is always the case, and this is so true, folks, we can allow our feelings to shape the way we behave and the way we act. So I'd like to ask a question this morning. Are you allowing the perception that you're in a weak position to shape your emotions and your decisions? Are we in danger of doing this as a church? I wonder if there's anything that we can do about it. I think there is. Think about this. Feelings and decisions are shaped by beliefs. That's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, namely your beliefs. In other words, if I align my beliefs with the truth, then I can change the way that I feel and the way that I act. Very important to do that. Now, society teaches us that in order to succeed, we need to jockey for a position of strength. But is that true? What happens if you aren't in a position of strength? What happens if there are a whole lot of things that are having an impact on your life that you have absolutely no control over? And I think that is largely the case for us as human beings. We con ourselves into thinking that we have a large measure of control, but actually we have very little control. So I'd, what I'd like to do is to spend some time having a look at Psalm 8 to see if it will shed some light on this whole subject of weakness and how it relates to what we are capable of doing and not doing. So let's read Psalm 8 together. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. 
Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. As we read that psalm for the first time, you might find it a little bit confusing, especially this brief and apparently random appearance of babies and infants. They come in there without any obvious meaning or explanation. What is that all about? But what I'd like to do this morning is to have a look at the structure of the psalm, because I think that that will help us to understand the meaning more clearly. And the first thing that we notice as we read the psalm is that the first sentence and the last sentence are the same. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, we immediately ask ourselves the question, why is that repeated? And it's because the guy who's writing the psalm wants to emphasize something to us. So presumably this psalm is about the subject of the Lord's majesty in the earth. And in between the first and the last line, we're going to find out something about the Lord's majesty. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the majesty of God is declared by all that he has made on the earth. And of course, when we look at the earth, we can see that God is truly majestic. But then there's more to come. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. And from that we see that there's an even greater majesty and glory that can be seen in the heavens namely the stars and the planets. I was busy Googling it this morning, and Google told me that our Milky Way galaxy has between has about 250 billion stars in it. Of course, as we know, the nearest star is the sun. There are 250 billion of those, plus or minus 150 billion. <laughs> they can't, I mean, his work is so huge, it's so massive, that we can't even count it. And then when we think that there are a hundred billion galaxies in the universe, we can see that the psalmist is starting to ramp up this idea of God's majesty and his glory. Let's keep reading. Out of the mouth of babies and infants. Where does that come from? I wonder if you can see the contrast there between the awesome majesty and glory of God and the weakness of babies and infants. But he's not only talking about babies and infants, he's talking about their mouths. Now what is it that we know about the mouths of babies and infants? They can hardly speak. Babies can't speak, they just make sounds. Ga ga ga, da da da, ba ba ba. <laughs> is that good? Yes, my screaming, is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> and, 
and infants can hardly string a sentence together. And yet, look at what God does. He uses the mouth of babies and infants to establish strength and to still the enemy and the avenger. Isn't that astounding? God can establish strength through the halting words of toddlers. He can defeat his enemies using the mouths of babies. Look at the way I've colored that. So I've colored the first part of the psalm. The glory and the majesty of God is in red. The weakness of babies is in green. And that's contrasted. Then we see in yellow, we see the majesty of God manifested through the weakness of babies in order to defeat God's enemies. In the words of John Piper, God's majesty stoops to make babies the means of his triumphs. Now we come to the next unit or the next part of the song. The first unit was structured glory, contrasted with weakness, and then majesty manifested through weakness. Have a look at verse 3. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. So structurally, that corresponds with you have set your glory above the heavens, also in red. Do you see that? They both refer to God's glory and to his majesty in the universe. Just think about this for a moment. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had to dig a hole in the garden uh, so that we could bury our cat. And I'll, I'll tell you something, that was not the work of my fingers. <laughs> it required my whole body to dig that hole. And a couple of days later, I could feel it all over. But you know, God created a hundred billion galaxies with his fingers. And you compare that with my work of digging a hole, which required my whole body. God is amazing. He can do all of that. You know, we often, if we come with a starting point in our thinking that this universe was created as a home for us, well, then it would be far too big for that, wouldn't it? And so that wasn't the reason why it was created so big. It was created so big to tell us something about God and how he could do all of that simply with the work of his fingers. That's how awesome he is. Right. Now, as you might have deduced from the structure of the first unit, the psalmist is, going to move, psalmist is going to move on now from the glory of God to something that is weak. In the first unit, it was, it was babies and infants. And in the second unit, it's man. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? When you look at the work of God's fingers, man is weak and infinitely small by comparison. And yet, God has given him dominion over creation. God has put all things under the feet of weak humans. We know that also from Genesis chapter 1, 26, where it says that God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the, over the earth. So the majesty of the Lord in the earth is displayed in a very unique way. It's a peculiar majesty. It's manifested through weakness. In the first part of the psalm, God's majesty stoops to make babies the means of his triumph. In the second, God rules the world with the weakness of men. 
don't know about you, but that starts to give me a little bit of hope. Doesn't that mean that God can work through us even if we are in a weak position? I think it does. But maybe you aren't convinced. You see, that principle of strength in weakness is very counterintuitive. It's so counter what culture and society tells us. And so you probably would like some more evidence. Maybe we just found the meaning of that psalm wrong. Maybe we interpreted it wrong. So what I'd like to see now is how Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the writer to the Hebrews see how they understood this psalm and also that relationship between our weakness and the majesty of God. So let's get to it. We go to Matthew 21. Jesus is about to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem as the king of Israel. He's going to be the savior of Israel. Now just imagine our situation here, our context. Imagine if you were appointed to be the savior of Zimbabwe. Okay, you're the one who's going to come in triumph, go into the center of the capital city. What form of transport would you choose? Jesus chose a donkey. The Lord needs it. Why would the Lord need a donkey? Why would the king of Israel want to arrive on a donkey? Matthew's interpretation of this is taken from what Zechariah says in Zechariah 9, chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God doesn't save using awesome displays of power. Legions of angels crushing all opposition. His majesty on earth is manifested in a peculiar way. He chooses weakness and humility as a means to win his victories. Let's skip down now in 21 to verses 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Why were they indignant? Because people were saluting Jesus as the son of David. That, that title was a messianic title. People were hailing him as the Messiah. But how could he be the Messiah? He wasn't powerful. He was weak. He was riding on a donkey. He didn't have an army. He had no obvious trappings of power. How could he be the Messiah? And so they wrote him off. And they got indignant. You need to stop these children from praising you as the Messiah. Because you're not the Messiah. And the irony here is that the chief priests and the scribes, they should have known about the peculiar majesty of God. They were, the, they were the clever ones. They were the doctors of divinity, if you like, the students of the word. They knew the scriptures from back to front. They were the ones who had authority and power. They should have recognized the Messiah. But who was it who recognized the Messiah? Weak, simple children. They were the ones. And Jesus says to them, have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8. In other words, Jesus was saying, don't you understand the meaning of the scriptures. Don't you understand Psalm 8? 
that God's unique majesty is displayed on earth through weakness and humility. He's saying to them, you know, you think that I'm too weak and I'm too feeble to be the Messiah. But those are the exact traits that qualify me to be the Messiah. Those are the things that qualify me to be used by God. If you're in a weak position today, a whole lot of things coming to bear in your life where you feel powerless, that you have no control over, or maybe you need to see it in a different perspective. God can use the mouths of babies and infants to silence his enemies. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? The priests and the scribes on this particular occasion were silenced, just swept off the stage. We don't hear from them again in chapter 21. So I think we're beginning to see now that we have interpreted Psalm 8 in a similar way to that which Jesus did. Namely, that God chooses to manifest his majesty on earth through weak things. He uses weak things to display his power and his majesty. And of course, we see this throughout all of the teachings of Jesus. Here are some other examples from earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. If Christ followers want to achieve greatness, we need to be servants. If we want to do great things for the kingdom of God, if we want to have a significant impact for eternity, we need to become servants. That's why one of the values of this church is service. Matthew 18, 3-4 Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What's he getting at here? He's not talking about childishness. He's talking about childlikeness. Children, when they're small, are utterly dependent on their parents for absolutely everything that they need. They are humbled because they need to look to their parents for everything that they need. And if you're in a position of helplessness today, because there are so many circumstances that surround your life that are beyond your control, then you're actually in a position of strength because it will force you to, to come back to God and say, Father God, I'm utterly dependent on you. If you don't come for me on, through for us on this occasion, we're lost. And you know, God will often bring us in obedience to Him to a place where we are in that utter dependence on Him. And then as we look to Him for His man, majesty to be manifested through us, who is it that gets the glory? It's God. Who is it that people see? They look at the weakness and they think, the power couldn't have come from that. And it points them to God. So there's two things that we need to do. We need to humble ourselves like children. Allow God to lead you into a position where you will be totally dependent on Him. If He doesn't come through, we're lost. And number two, serve others. Find ways to serve people this week. 
So, Jesus understood Psalm 8 to say that God demonstrates his majesty on the earth in a very unique way, in that he uses babies to win his victories. And then Jesus modeled this, didn't he? He came in humility by serving others rather than by lording it over them with raw demonstrations of power. He came in complete childlike humility in that he was utterly dependent on his father. Let's move on now to what the Apostle Paul says. This is an amazing passage. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It takes a small shepherd boy, a mere teenager, doesn't even know how to put armor on, isn't even big enough to put on armor. And he takes on the giant of the Philistines and he defeats him. Takes a little boy who has two loaves and five fishes and uses it to feed 5,000 people. That's the way God works. Do you see that phrase, according to worldly standards? You see, the world says that we need to be in a position of strength in order to hack it in life. You need to be savvy, you need to be streetwise, you need to be powerful, you must have position. It's no wonder that we're looking to politicians to try and solve our problems. It's no wonder that we're looking to the World Bank, people who seem to have worldly wisdom and worldly power. They're the movers and the shakers, or so we think. But who is it that God chooses to win his victories? The foolish, by worldly standards. It actually isn't foolishness, because it's God's wisdom. He uses the weak. He uses the things that are low and the things that are not, so that we can boast in that peculiar majesty of God. We can't boast about human prowess. We can only boast in God's prowess. God takes the things that are not. You know, when Moses was out there in the desert in front of the burning bush, He's messed it up, messed things up in Egypt. He had to run away. He spent 40 years now, I can't remember exactly how many years it was, in the desert as a shepherd. And God says, you're going to lead my people out of, out of Egypt. God takes the things that are not. Moses is saying, I'm not a leader. I'm not somebody who can talk. I've got a faltering voice. I stutter. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And God is saying, uh-uh. I take the things that are not and I use them to, to be something for me so that I will get the praise and the glory. So the evidence is starting to build up, isn't it, folk? And I hope that there is just a, a kernel of unquenchable excitement in your heart. Some anticipation that is starting to build up. What is it that God could cause me to do in my weakness? I've always thought that maybe I'm not this, I'm not that. But maybe God, maybe God can use that. Let's have a look at Hebrews' understanding now. 
For it was not, uh, sorry, um, here we go. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Let's have a look at this. He's talking about God's plan to rule the new heavens and the new earth. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come. In other words, the ruling wasn't going to be done by powerful angels. And Craig described to us a couple of weeks ago how powerful angels are. How does the writer know this? Well, he knows it because he studied Psalm 8, the same psalm that we're studying today. And he quotes verses 4 to 6. God will use weak men to rule the universe. And so, in other words, once again, our understanding of Psalm 8 is being confirmed. Let's read on. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, in other words, to man, he left nothing outside of his control. So God's original intention when he created earth was that mankind would be in dominion over everything. Nothing would be outside of his control. Now the writer to Hebrews goes on to write, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the way it used to be, but then sin and death came into the world. And yes, man does have a measure of dominion, but not everything is under his control. I mean, earthquakes are crushing man, tsunamis are drowning him, wildfires are burning him, even little mosquitoes can kill him. That's the way things are now. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And now we come to an, a contrast, but, but we see him, who is this, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. In other words, Jack, Jesus came as a man. He was a little lower than the angels. And he has been crowned with glory and honor. In other words, he has been now been given dominion over creation. Why? Because of the suffering of death. What was the purpose of it? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, do we see from, from Christ's life on earth that he was in dominion over creation? I think we do. What did he do? He stilled the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves. Listen to him. There was this incredible storm and right in the middle of it, he said, be still. And it was still. He healed people of sickness and illness. He raised people to life. He multiplied food and fed thousands of people. Folks, what we need to understand this morning is that God gave us a representative on the cross so that we could have a representative on the throne. This is what Paul says. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to us as head over all things. Gave him to us, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Guys, this is utterly staggering. Can you see that God has restored dominion through Christ to us, to the church? God has given Jesus to us to harvest as the head over all things. 
and the dominion that we lost through sin has been restored to us. Now, when you look at yourself, you might see someone who's in um, a weak, precarious position. When you look at harvest, you might see a frail church that's in a wobbly position. But this is simply not true. From the world's perspective, that might seem to be the case. But what is the truth? How does God manifest His majesty in all the earth? He rules using weakness. He rules now using His church. And ultimately, when Jesus returns, that rule will be complete. Because everything will be subject to to us. Folks, what we need to understand is that our dominion has been restored. Do we exercise our dominion by dominating people, by forcing them, by controlling them? We don't. We do it by serving them. And if we don't have the money, or we're feeling tired, or we're battling with health issues, or there's lots of things happening in our lives that are beyond our control, we don't draw back. But in humility, we depend on our Heavenly Father for what we need. Just as children look to their parents, we step out in obedience and faith, trusting that God will supply our needs. And I can assure you, folks, that God will bring you to that place of dependence on Him. If you're a true child of His, He will bring you to that place where you need to depend on Him utterly. And folks, if we aren't in that place where we need to depend on Him utterly, then we're not walking in faith. We're not walking in trust in God. Because that's where He wants us to be. He wants us to be childlike. And that's how His power is manifested through us, through the kingdom of God, into the earth. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Exercise your dominion. And all of these things will be added unto you. Praise God.